It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. Right COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which means coming up in about an hour, we have our uh, two-hour weekly roundtable armchair politics. Jan Worth Nelson from East Village Magazine will be joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. We were going to do the show uh, initially. This was going to be our first face-to-face show. We were going to do it out on my deck, but the weather is uh, a little threatening and didn't want to uh, get stuck in the rain. So uh, we're we're doing it by phone this week, as we have been throughout the pandemic. As is the case with my guest this first hour, it's the first Wednesday of the month, which is when we usually check in with economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint and Chris joins me now by phone. Hi Chris, welcome to the show. Hi Tom, great to be here. Um, Chris, let's let's talk Bitcoin um, for a minute. Um, I, I just saw in the in the Wall Street Journal that uh, the whole concept of Bitcoin in uh, and and potential Bitcoin fraud is drawing uh, some attention of regulators because it's uh, Bitcoins are moving uh, more and more into um, Wall Street activities without uh, any real investor or consumer protections. What 
Bitcoin just seems like a made-up thing to me. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's right. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's not backed by anything. It's not backed by gold, silver, any tangible asset. But the Bitcoin kind, kind of like the U.S. Say, well, dollar. <laughs> yeah, so I was just going to say the Bitcoin enthusiasts will say, "Well, that's the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar fiat currency meaning is not backed by anything except the full faith and confidence of the U.S. government, which a lot of people might say is not worth so much." Um, but I think the issue you're talking about with Bitcoin, or one of the issues with Bitcoin is, is that there's no way to recover the Bitcoin if you lose your key. So um, Bitcoin is what's called a cryptocurrency. Um, the person who invented Bitcoin, um, a Japanese individual, uh, I think this is like back in 2011, 2012. I think Bitcoin first hit 2013 or so. Uh, but computers, quote unquote, mine Bitcoin by solving complex algorithms. So when an algorithm is solved, the reward is a Bitcoin. So the algorithm started off very easy. You can mine a Bitcoin with a laptop, you know, back in the early days. But the algorithms get progressively harder. Um, so now you need a supercomputer um, to mine a Bitcoin, which is why Bitcoin requires so much energy. You hear people complain about that. Um, Elon Musk famously said that Tesla was going to accept Bitcoins because of the energy used to mine Bitcoins and then later process the transactions. But the supply of Bitcoins is capped at something like 22, 24 million Bitcoins max. So once that number of Bitcoins hits, all mining activity stops. So I think that's one um, draw for Bitcoin is that there's this cap on the supply of Bitcoin where Famously, there's no cap on the supply of dollars. The Federal Reserve can create as many dollars as it wants, and that's exactly what it's done over the last 16 months, you know, where the money supply has increased by about 40%. So, you know, that could lead to inflation. So a lot of people say, well, perhaps Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation. But there's no paper currency for Bitcoin. It's all electronic. Um, you access your Bitcoin by having like a 40-character password. I think it's called a key like a cryptography key. If you lose that key, the Bitcoin's gone. You know, there's no way to get the Bitcoin back. So there's millions of dollars out there in Bitcoin that people mined in their early days. They're sitting on flash drives. They just lost their Bitcoin and it's gone. And the key is so long that there's no real way to guess it. Like you could guess your password. There's no way to reset it. Like you could reset your password. If you use your Bitcoin in a transaction, there's no way to reverse the transaction like you can for a credit card. So in that sense, um, Bitcoin's a little bit risky um, in the sense that if you, if, you lost your, if you lose your key or if you decide, hey, you want a refund, um, yeah, you're kind of out of luck. So that's one thing going on with Bitcoin. Another thing going on is China is looking to ban Bitcoin, perhaps. So mining activity has gone down as these Chinese computers have come offline who are mining Bitcoin. And that's helped cause the price of Bitcoin to sag. You know, it was at sixty thousand dollars per Bitcoin a couple months ago. You know, now it's closer to thirty-five thousand dollars per Bitcoin. So there's a lot of people out there who bought Bitcoin when it was at sixty thousand dollars, thinking, "Well, hey, the sky's the limit." Or if you want to tie this to Reddit, people talk about various asset prices going to the moon. You know, that's the meme people use on Reddit to say a stock price is going to skyrocket. 
you know, like GameStop did a couple of months ago famously. Right. So people are saying, well, Bitcoin's going to be a million bucks per Bitcoin. So they bought it to 60000 and now it's lost nearly half its value from that high. So you know, there are a lot of people who've lost a lot of money on Bitcoin um, betting wrong, which is you know, kind of classic bubble activity. You see a bunch of money rushing at the top, and then people who bought at the bottom are like, well, hey, I'm looking at a big return. It's time to cash out. So I think you're seeing a lot of that, too. People who bought Bitcoin was like maybe 10000 bucks of Bitcoin. You know, saw their money triple and say, well, it's a good time to take my losses and move on, or take my gains and move on. Well, and, So that's a long explanation for what's going on with Bitcoin, but there's a lot going on there. And, and essentially, uh, it's the um, U.S. Uh, regulatory authorities are starting to look into this and figure out what kind of protections and, and regulations they can put in place to protect people from uh, fraudulent Bitcoin activity. Now, did, did, am I remembering this correctly, or did I end up merging a couple of stories? But in recent news events about ransomware attacks where a company's uh, computer information, their databases are, are, are hacked and, and then recoded so they can't get into them without paying a ransom to, to get the, the code to unlock their information. Did I see that the, the ransomware attackers were requesting payment in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency yeah, that's at least? So the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, uh, this is early in June, I believe, or late May around Memorial Day. You know, that shut down the East Coast Pipeline and caused some gasoline shortages. Yeah, they want to pay in Bitcoin. And there is another wave of ransomware attacks that have happened after that. There's a meatpacking plant that got hit. And I think there's several ongoing right now. And they all want payment in Bitcoin. Which on one hand, I don't really get because Bitcoin transactions aren't anonymous. Um, people think they are, but they're not. All the Bitcoin transactions are posted on a public ledger that's called the blockchain where you could go back and trace all the transactions a particular Bitcoin has gone through. So that's one reason why uh, Bitcoin transactions take a while to process because every transaction updates that blockchain. So if law enforcement can figure out um, where that particular Bitcoin is going, or if someone has a Bitcoin that was used to pay a ransomware attack and they could trace it back, you know, they could track down the, uh, the hackers. And it seems like that might have been what happened with the Colonial Pipeline. Um, where the hackers put the bitcoins they received on an exchange. Um, Coinbase is an example of one of those exchanges. It might have been Coinbase, but you know the FBI figured out that hey, this is a bitcoin that was paid in the ransomware attack. So you know here are the hackers were just going to seize the bitcoin from them. So for whatever reason, these hackers like to be paid a bitcoin, but it's, it's non-anonymous. So maybe it's a short-sighted strategy on their part. Uh, but it does give fuel to the fire of people who want to ban Bitcoin saying, well, look, you know, these things are just used in fraudulent transactions, either for ransomware attacks, maybe to buy drugs, maybe human trafficking. So since these Bitcoins are being used to buy goods and services, but they are being used for illegal activities, you know, maybe we should just ban the entire thing, uh, not to mention the energy consumption that's used for Bitcoin, you know, global warming concerns. You know, that would be another justification people would use to um, try to uh, clamp out on Bitcoin. 
Uh, on, a, on a more bread and butter issue, what is going on with food prices? Yeah, it's just like everything else. Um, I think it's a combination of your traditional inflation, demand-side inflation. So if you would take like a principles of macro class, like an Econ 101 but is, class. But Chris, is there is there more demand for food this week than there was last week? Um, it's, it's possible. You know, I understand some things were interrupted, but, you know, the, the food supply, you know, a lot of people jumped through a lot of hoops to make sure that food could get, you know, from, from the source to the consumer through various uh, adjustments in distribution. Is, are, are they just trying to get the money back that they invested in, in making those changes? Yeah, I was thinking that um, if you look at how much money has been created over the last 16 months, you've had uh, three rounds of stimulus payments going to people, you know, plus other sources of aid, enhanced unemployment benefits, expansions of the child, child tax credit. Uh, there are people out there who've gotten tens of thousands of dollars from the U.S. government um, over the last 16 months. And all that's really been financed by printing money, which is the recipe for inflation. So... Why food prices are rising right now, um, it might be the case that people aren't buying necessarily more groceries um, now compared to a couple months ago, uh, but people are probably eating out more now than a couple of months ago due to um, restrictions easing. So that's increasing the demand for food at, at restaurants, and you know that demand has to be met by um, food suppliers, which puts upward pressure on prices. Uh, if you think back to April 2020 when the restaurants were shut down, a lot of that food went to waste. Um, you know, there are stories famously about how eggs are being destroyed, livestock was being slaughtered. Because Milk trucks you know, emptied the, in the road. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, because I guess the way the food supply chain works, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to ship eggs that were going from a restaurant uh, to, a gro to a grocery store. You know, same with meat, same with other products. All, all those products were lost. And now these restaurants are opening back up, and they seem pretty busy, at least the restaurants I've gone to. In fact, I've been turned away from a few restaurants just because they've been so busy. So you've got all this, you know, quote-unquote, pent-up demand for restaurants, which is pushing up um, the demand for food that these restaurants serve. Well, all that supply was lost over the last year, so now they're maybe trying to make up for lost ground, which is putting upward pressure on prices across the board for food. I think that's a big part of it. My guest is uh, Chris Douglas, economist from the University of Michigan. Flint, Chris, I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around so we can talk some more? Oh, sure. Excellent. Um, again, Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan. Flint, we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV, Our Voices Radio, 92.1 LPFM in Flint a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. And uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. More with Chris Douglas right after this. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner Program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all you, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to my conversation with economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint. Chris joins me by phone. Chris, uh, thanks for sticking around, and uh, sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no problem. It's always great to be here. Um, Chris, I, I again, I picked uh, up something from uh, the Wall Street Journal about lower-wage workers uh, seeing gains from the uh, easing of, of pandemic-related restrictions, um, primarily in restaurants and, and hotels. Um, is, is the comeback happening faster and, and better at the uh, lower-income uh, spectrum of the, uh, of the economy? It seems like it in the latest jobs report where the majority of the jobs were in the leisure and hospitality industry. Uh, so those are mostly jobs being regained that were lost due to the restrictions. Uh, but given that, was, that it was the lower wage sector of the labor market that get, got hit the hardest um, with the pandemic restrictions, um, it just makes sense that that would be the sector of the labor market that sees the biggest gains. You think about like upper middle class, upper class workers, um, their white collar workers were able to seamlessly shift to work at home and didn't really see a loss of job or income. So there's not much gains to be had in that part of the labor market since there weren't many losses. So given that these restrictions are easing, it makes sense that you're going to see gains in the part of the labor market, part of the economy that were hit the hardest. You're seeing wages rise uh, in the lower wage sector of the labor market because um, of the labor shortages that are across the country. Um, it's hard to go down the street and not see a bar, restaurant, any store really with a health wanted side. They're just everywhere. Um, I think what's going on is that these establishments are really competing with the enhanced unemployment benefits where you take the typical unemployment benefit and it adds $300 per week to it until the beginning of September. So the typical benefit's about $400 per week. So add 300 to that, that's $700 per week, which is about $2,800 uh, per month. So if someone's working 40 hours a week, um, that, that unemployment's equivalent to make it about $1,750 per hour. So if you're a, a, a restaurant and you're offering, say, 12 bucks an hour, well, you're not going to have many takers because unemployment is paying better. So in order to attract workers, you know, restaurants, hotels, just retail establishments are having to consistently up the wage in order to entice workers to come back to work. So in that sense, like these restrictions ending are kind of like a double-edged sword for these businesses because on the one hand, you're like, well, if there are restrictions, these businesses can't make it if they can't sell their product and collect revenue. But on the other hand, now these restrictions are are lifted, well, businesses can't attract workers that they need to sell their product unless they raise their wages, which cuts into their profits. So it's kind of like you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. What but does, I think that's what does this mean oh, for sorry. economic recovery? Uh, well, the labor shortages are kind of putting uh, putting the brakes or putting a damper on the economic recovery. 
because everyone wants things to go back to normal, to have life be like what it was in February 2020 before the pandemic hit. You know, people want to go back to restaurants. People want to go back to traveling. You know, people want to go back to living their lives. And if businesses can't find workers, well, that becomes less possible. So if you go to a restaurant, well, you might go to the restaurant and see half the table's empty, but the restaurant can't seat you because they're so short-staffed. Or, you know, if you go to fly somewhere, you know, maybe check-in takes a lot longer because you're rather than three people working behind the counter, you have one person working behind the counter. So if businesses are just facing these supply restrictions, you know, prices are going to start to rise and um, output is going to be more sluggish to recover. You know, GDP is going to be more sluggish to recover. So life will feel more like normal now compared to, say, last summer, but it won't be fully back to normal um, given these shortages and supply issues. Um, and you see this across other sectors of the economy, too. You know, if you if you need to buy a new or a used car right now, man, I kind of feel bad for you because it's really bad to be a new car buyer. Um, given the microprocessor shortage um, due to COVID-19, um, new cars are just in very short supply. You can see that by just driving by car dealerships. That dealership lots are looking pretty empty. So if you're fortunate to find a car you want to buy, you really have no bargaining power with the dealership because... You know, cars are in short, such short supply that people are actually paying above sticker for new cars now. Um, used cars, um, same deal. I think used car prices are up by something like 30 or 40% compared to the beginning of the pandemic. So if you need a used car, you know, a used car that would have cost you maybe $2,000 a couple of years ago might cost you closer to three or $4,000 now. If you, need a, if you need to buy a house, I mean, you're in a real tough situation now, given that housing prices have really risen over the last 16 months. And you know, any house that's in decent shape is having multiple cash offers come in. So you really got to get lucky to try to um, be able to buy a house now. So all those things are really putting a damper on you know, things getting back to normal. That if you can't find the products you need to buy, um, you can't really move because you can't find a, a house to purchase that's priced reasonably. You know, that just makes the economy operate less efficiently. I think last month, Chris, we talked a little bit about the increased uh, prices for lumber. And you explained at that time that that was, you know, a supply and demand thing. It, that, you know, the supply was way down during the pandemic, um, or demand was way down. And so the supply tapered off, uh, you know, to... to level off with demand and then when demand rose again it takes a while to get production back up to meet that demand um, how long is it going to take for some of these industries whether it's chips for cars or uh, you know board feet in the in the lumber industry um, how long is it going to take to catch back up and will prices come back down or do they just rise and level off yeah, all good questions, but I think the answer is a big question mark, um, just because we've never been in this situation before. I think with things like lumber, um, worker worker supply, labor supply is an issue, and then if you're a, a lumber mill, you, you might be having a tough time attracting workers just like every other business out there. So um, even if you could get the raw lumber, it's hard to convert them into boards and plywood, which um, prevents prices from 
coming all the way back down, although lumber prices have decreased um, since we talked last month. So probably part of the increase in lumber prices was speculation, kind of like Bitcoin. People think that prices are going to rise forever. So, hey, let's buy low and let, let the price continue to rise. And you know, maybe some of the falling prices of lumber is due to speculators getting out of the market, people saying, well, actually, prices aren't going to be rising forever. So let's get out and cut our losses. But still, lumber prices are substantially higher than they were 16 months ago. And I think it just takes a long time for supply to come back online. Because before COVID, the global supply chain was optimized for efficiency. Uh, people didn't like to hold inventories because that requires warehouse space to do, which is expensive. You have to have workers to work the warehouse. You have to have a big building, which you have to heat and cool. So manufacturers switched to so-called just-in-time inventory. You don't get the boards. You, know, you don't get the headlights. You don't get the microprocessors until you need them. Right, you literally get the computer chips like the day the car is being built. Well, sure, that saves on warehousing. It's efficient when the thing works, but when things get gummed up like they have been for the last 16 months, well, then you've got a real issue because you don't have all those things sitting in inventories so you can build cars or build houses uh, while your suppliers try to work out their issues. So the, the answer to your question is, is, it, it persists as long as it takes for computer chip suppliers, um, lumber mills, loggers, um, to get their operations fully back online. And then once they do, well, then there's the issue of global shipping. Because, like, these computer chips are often manufactured in China, and there's this backlog of transoceanic um, container ships at, you know, the various ports around the country. Uh Part of it's a COVID issue. Demand dried up over the last 16 months, particularly during um, the middle of 2020. So now everyone's trying to race up to make for lost time. Well, there's only so much you could do to speed up traffic at the ports, right? The ports are only so big and they can only handle so many ships. So it's not like you just you could just let triple the amount of ships into the port that you were that you were letting in before COVID. Um, so that gums up the supply issues, and then you have issues with manning the crews. You have issues with um, quarantining if one of the crew members comes down with COVID. You have border restrictions. Famously, there's border restrictions um, with the U.S. and Canada that's really gumming things up. You just have all these supply chain issues in a global supply chain that really rests on the assumption of everything is going to move seamlessly. So... Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. It's just how long does it take the supply chain to get back to where it was in February 2020? Could be a long time. There's been a lot of talk in Lansing and in uh, Washington about investing in infrastructure. And it's almost being treated in the wake of the pandemic as um, almost comparable to the uh, uh kind of things that FDR did in terms of um, putting people back to work by investing in public uh, works projects. And a lo lot of people on both sides of the aisle are saying that that would do a lot to rev up the economy, but, but some of the economists are saying, yeah, but kind of short term. What, what is going on there? Yeah, I'm fairly cynical about infrastructure just because every time there's a recession, it seems like 
people trot out infrastructure as a justification to you know ramp up government spending because who could be against improving the roads, improving the water system, improving the power grid? But things never seem to really improve. I remember uh, back in 2009 uh, when the $750 billion stimulus was being debated, which seems like chump change by today's standards. But the idea was that all these people who are building homes who are out of work due to the housing crash could go to work on roads, the power grid, uh, the water system, and so forth. And who could be against that? Well, you know, that $750 billion stimulus was passed, signed into law. It doesn't seem like any of the infrastructure got noticeably better. So I know um, the administration wants to spend $2 trillion on infrastructure. Um, my question is, is what will we get for it? If the roads noticeably improve, the water system noticeably improves, if the power grid gets more resilient, well, that might be one thing, but um, preliminary details don't seem super reassuring. And that when you look at what fraction of that $2 trillion actually goes to the roads, it seems like a pretty small fraction. So all this money could be dumped into quote unquote infrastructure and then five or 10 years down the road, the roads are still full of potholes. It's still not very good. And then that makes it more difficult for say state or local governments to raise revenue to repair the roads because taxpayers rightly so will say, well, Hey, five or 10 years ago, you know, $2 trillion was dumped into the roads. What do we get for it? It doesn't seem like a whole lot. So why should we raise the gas tax by 20 cents per gallon? pay more for gas if all this infrastructure spending doesn't result in improvements. I think there's been a real baited switch with infrastructure um, discussion in the sense that like anything can be justified as infrastructure, right? Child childcare is now considered infrastructure. They're talking about family infrastructure. And that's not what people really think with infrastructure. People and- think about roads and bridges improving. So Infrastructure spending really needs to make that happen. Well, yeah, and and as you point out, Chris, uh, bandwidth and computers in schools and all kinds of other things are all part of of what President Biden introduced as infrastructure that needed improvement. And then over time, as he ran into more and more pushback, all of a sudden. It, even though the the bills and and the the um, legislation hasn't changed all that much, the conversation seems to center around roads and bridges. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's something everyone's in favor of. Right. Yeah, everyone takes road trips. Everyone uses bridges. So everyone wants those to be good. So it's kind of like this cynical political ploy in that you couch the debate as something everyone's in favor of, and then when the thing is actually enacted, well. You know, very little of the money actually goes towards that. It goes towards other things. And then five or 10 years later, you know, we repeat the same process. Talk about infrastructure spending, who's against roads. Well, no one is. So then the new bill gets enacted, and then the money seems to find a, a different home. So I think there'd be a lot of support to improve the roads. Um, I'm just not super confident that that's actually what will happen. You know, if this so-called infrastructure bill gets enacted. Another problem, too, is uh, suppose $2 trillion does get dedicated to the roads. Uh, you have maybe the U.S. Department of Transportation uh, gives some block grants to state transportation agencies to improve 
uh, the state roads, you know, interstate highways, um, state roads like the M roads in Michigan, the U.S. roads, and then maybe give some block grants to um, local governments to approve the local roads. Well, if that's what would happen, well, then you have all these different agencies having a big chunk of money. They're all going to be trying to spend it up at once to do these road projects. Well, there's only so many road contractors out there. <laughs> so the end result will be is that, well, prices will rise. And all of a sudden, you know, your $2 million isn't going to buy you the same amount of road that you thought it did. So that's just the classic recipe for inflation. You mentioned um, the the housing crash um uh, 10 years ago or so and now housing prices are booming um is is that did did the crash set the stage for that the bursting of that bubble or is this uh, a, a reaction a post-pandemic reaction by people who've been closed up for a year and a half and now all of a sudden they want uh, different better more space yeah another good question um because if you look at the case shiller home price index which uh, tracks the average prices of houses across the united states you know it's surged way past its uh, pre uh, great recession high so do you look at the graph um you know, people like to, you know, Monday morning quarterback and say, well, back in 2006, people should know there's a problem. Look how home prices are skyrocketing. And then they fast forward to 2021 and home prices are skyrocketing even further. You know, does that mean there's a, a coming crash or is this time different, right? That's what people always say. Well, this time is different. And I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I don't think there'll be another crash, though, in the sense that the crash a dozen years ago wasn't really caused by home prices falling themselves. Uh, if home prices fall, you know, that's terrible for the homeowner, right? You see a good chunk of your wealth wiped out, can put you underwater on a mortgage, but it's it's good for home buyers. So it's kind of like a wash, right? One side of the market loses, the other side of the market wins. It seems like the crash is really caused by all these exotic financial products that were tied to home prices, where if home prices went down, these financial products blew up. And all of a sudden, these massive, quote-unquote, too-big-to-fail banks had some real solvency problems. And if those banks failed, well, that could apparently bring down the entire economy. So assuming those similar financial products aren't being written for home prices today, well, that if home prices fall in the future, there shouldn't be a subsequent crash. Um, what I think is driving the increase of home prices now, I think it is people trying to search for space. Um, with the pandemic. I think we talked about this a little bit last month. In yeah, the sense I think that you're right. If, yeah, if you have like a 500 square foot studio apartment in New York City, in normal times, not a big deal. You're just basically sleeping there because you're working, enjoying the New York City amenities. But March 2020 hits and all of a sudden you have to stay in your apartment basically 24 hours a day and 500 square feet seems pretty small. So, you know, there's lots of people in that situation in lots of different cities who are like, well, you know, maybe this is the time to you know, move to the suburbs, move to the country, buy a house, get some space where at least I could go into my backyard. Maybe I could go for a walk or go for a run in the rural part uh, where I'm living, where lots of big cities had restrictions even being outside. Maybe you had to wear a mask to be outside, for instance, or had to social distance with being outside. So you have this big increase in demand for space, which pushes prices up. And that's also fueled by people getting these 
um, stimulus checks. You might get, uh, I think the first stimulus check was, I think it was $2,000 the first round. Mm-hmm. It was in that ballpark. Yeah. And that might be enough for a down payment where, you know, the old days of a 20% down payment, those are gone. Um, you can get a house maybe with like a 2 or 3% down payment, which means, you know, if you have a, a half a million dollar house, you know, a 2% down payment is, what is that, like? Uh, half a million dollars, five thousand dollars. If I'm doing the math right in my head, so stimulus check covers half of that. Maybe you have some savings that covers the other half, and all of a sudden that buying that house looks pretty feasible, especially with interest rates being at historic lows. That um, early in the pandemic, you know, the 30-year mortgage rate was under three percent. So a lot of people are saying, "Well, I've got some cash to spend. Um, mortgage interest rates are really low." You know, let's take advantage of this by going and buying a house, which causes prices to surge. So assuming people don't stop paying their mortgages like they did a dozen years ago, it might be the case that prices just remain permanently high. And consumer preferences might have changed uh, post-pandemic, where it's kind of like, you know, fool me once, shame on, me, uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, in the sense that even the people who stuck around the major cities during the pandemic, pandemic might say, I don't think I should stick around the major city after the pandemic because if there's another shutdown, um, you know, I don't want to be stuck in this apartment again. And it looks like crime is becoming a real issue across major cities. Um, you know, lots of cities are seeing um, the murder rate, for instance, spike um, for whatever reason. So that's another incentive for people to say, well, it's time to bail on the, the city I'm living in. It'll go buy a house in the country, go buy a house in the suburbs which will further cause prices to increase, which is to say, well, this time might be different. You know, maybe, you know, prices will either permanently plateau at this high level, you know, or continue to rise as, you know, cities start to empty out and people look for some space um, in the suburbs and the rural communities. Well, Chris, we're just about out of time. And as always, it it just flies by when we get a chance to get together and chat. And um, we'll get together again in about a month and and see where we're at then. Um, I think I just uh, I think I just lost Chris, but uh, that was Chris Douglas, uh, economist from the University of Michigan, Flint. Hopefully, when Chris and I get together the next time, uh, we'll have a chance to. get together in uh, in person so we're uh, we're going to take a short break but armchair politics is coming up at the uh, at the top of the hour we'll have two hours of commentary analysis on uh, local state national headlines and current events with our roundtable regulars paul rosicki and henry hatter joined by janworth nelson stay tuned <music> Money, money, money makes the world go round. 
Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org. 
or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Uh, George Parr, you are in an investment banker. I am, yes. Yes. And as such, you have your fingers right on the pulse of the financial market. Yeah, very much so, yes. And uh, during the summer, there's been uh, a great deal of turbulence and volatility, volatility, volatility in, in the market, yes. yes. Tremendously, yes, tremendously. Yes, yes. and uh, what has caused that? Well, uh, you have to remember two things about the market. One is that they are made up of very sharp and sophisticated people mm. who, uh, um, these are the greatest brains in the world. And the second thing you have to remember is that the financial markets, uh, to use the common phrase, are driven by sentiment. Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, uh, things, let's say, are just going along as normal in the market. And then, suddenly, out of the blue, one of these very sharp and sophisticated people says, My God, something awful's going to happen! Uh, we, we lost everything! Oh, my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Uh, <laughs> shall I jump out of the window? Shall I jump out of the window? <laughs> Let's all jump out of the window! We, oh, we, sell! We've lost a sell! 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 sell. Yes, precisely. Yes, precisely. <laughs> and then, a few days later, this same uh, sophisticated person says, You know, I think things are going rather well. And everybody says, yes, I, I agree with you. I think we're rich. We're rich. Yes. We're rich. Bye-bye-bye. Yes. Bye-bye-bye, yes. yes. And that, that is, that's what we call market sentiment. Uh, but, uh, well, <laughs> yes, uh, surely we are exaggerating just a bit, aren't well, we? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, in August, in the middle of August this year, when the market absolutely plunged in, in London, the, uh, a well-known city firm, uh, State Street Global Markets, mm-hmm. uh, issued a statement in which it said, and I quote, Market participants don't know whether to buy on the rumour and sell on the news. Do the opposite, do both, or do neither, depending on which way the wind is blowing, unquote. (laughs) Yes, and this is the kind of rigorous analysis Analysis, the companies will pay huge salaries for. Yes, exactly. And a, a few days later, when the markets have gone up a little bit, the senior equities advisor on ABM, Ambrose Morgan, said, and I quote, we're back to happy days again. <laughs> well, no price is too high for that, uh, no. for that kind and, of and mature wisdom. Certainly not. <laughs> this sort of people are, are paid millions of pounds in bonuses. Yes, of course. Uh, during this summer, there have been actual causes behind the volatility in the markets, yes, haven't there? I yes. mean, specifically and especially in America, uh, granting vast numbers of mortgages uh, to people who can't afford them yes. on properties which are diminishing in value. Well, yeah, this is the so-called subprime uh, uh, situation, yes, the, the subprime, subprime market. Yes, how, how does that work, in fact? Well, imagine, uh, if you can, uh, say, <coughs> an unemployed black man sitting on a crumbling porch somewhere in Alabama in his string vest, and mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a chap comes along and said, would you like to buy this house before it falls down? And um, why do you let me lend you the money? And is this chap who says this, is he a banker? Oh, no, no, no. He's a mortgage salesman. His income depends entirely on the number of mortgages that he can arrange. 
So his judgment to arrange mortgages is completely objective? Completely objective, yes. yes absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes. And, uh, and what happens next? Well, then this debt, this mortgage, is, 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 debt, is, 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 is taken, uh, bought by a bank and p packaged together mm -hmm. uh, on Wall Street with a lot of other uh, similar debts. Without going into much detail about what is actually... Without going into any detail, no, it's far too boring. <laughs> and so this is, this is put into a package of debt, and so, and then it's moved on to Wall Street, and this, this is, it's extraordinary what happens then, that mm -hmm. somehow this package of dodgy debt stops being a package of dodgy debts and starts being what we call a structured investment vehicle. <laughs> and, uh... SIV? And SIV, exactly, yes. Yes, I see. And then someone like you comes along and, 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 and buys it. I, I buy it, yes. And uh, yes. then I will ring up, I don't know, somebody in Tokyo and say, look, I've got this package, do you want to buy it? Mm -hmm. And they say, what's in it? And I say, I haven't got the faintest idea. <laughs> and they say, how much do you want for it? And I say, a hundred million dollars. And then, then they say, fine, that's it. And that's the, that's the market. <laughs> and presumably, this package, I mean, that kind of thing can happen several times oh, to the could, same yes, could, uh, possibly, package. Possibly, yes. And, uh, and every time it does, of course, um, then you, or someone like you, will get a fee and a markup. And, and a profit, and, yes. And, yes. and, and well, so... Well, I expect to do it for nothing. It's hard work, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> In view of the fact that, that in these packages is a lot of dodgy debt, mm. uh, what is it about it that attracts the, the financial, investment. you know, yes. risk takers? Yes, well, because um, these, these hedge funds, as they're called, which specialize in these debts, um, they all have very good names. You mean they're responsible companies? No, no, I don't know. It's nothing to do with their reputation. They have actually very, very good names. They're, the names they think up of them are very good. I'll give you an example. <laughs> there, there, there's a, a very well-known American Wall Street firm called Bear Stearns mm -hmm. who have two of these hedge funds which specialize in these, these mortgage debts. And uh, they lost so much money, well, lost so much of its value, that Bear Stearns announced that they would have to put in $3.2 billion dollars into one of the funds to try and keep it afloat. $3.2 billion? $3.2 billion, yes, yes. And even then they said the investors couldn't get any money out of it and they were going to let the other fund go. But one of these funds was called the High Grade Structured Credit Strategies Fund and the other was called the High Grade Structured Credit Enhanced Leverage Fund. <laughs> well, that sounds very good. That's it? good, isn't it? it? Yeah. <laughs> This is the, the magic of the market. What started off as lending a few thousand dollars to an unemployed black man in a string vest has become a high-grade structured credit enhanced leverage fund. <laughs> I like the sound of it. It, it is good. Well, it sounds very trustworthy. I mean, it's got good words in it. It's got yes. words like high. High is good. High is good. <laughs> Better than low, anyway, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and structured is another good word. Very good. Enhanced. Is I love good. enhanced. Enhanced is very good. <laughs> I mean, I'd buy anything if it said enhanced. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. It might have been different if it said the unemployed black man in the string vest fund, but... but, but <laughs> yes, because then uh, alarm bells might start <laughs> to ring. But uh, despite these very plausible names, mm. surely the reality is that the people that lent all this money have been incredibly stupid. Oh, no. No, no. The reality is that what was stupid is that at some point somebody asked how much money these houses were actually worth.
I mean, if they hadn't bothered to ask that question, then everything would have gone on as perfectly normal. But but unfortunately, they did. I see, but now, you see, people are saying the crisis is likely to turn into a financial meltdown. I mean, can that be avoided? It can be avoided, provided that governments and central banks give us, the financial speculators, back the money that we've lost. But isn't that rewarding greed and stupidity? No, no. It's rewarding what the Prime Minister Gordon Brown called the ingenuity of the markets. That he <laughs> you see, and, and, and uh, we, don't want, we don't want this money to spend on ourselves. We want this money just to go into the market so that we can carry on borrowing and lending money as if nothing had happened without thinking too much about it. <laughs> yes, but if the worst came to the worst and you didn't get this money, what then? Well, then there'd be another market crash, and then I would say to you what people like me always say, that it's not us that will suffer, it's your pension fund. I wanted to get some new girlfriends so I went and bought a Mercedes Benz, a waste of money. Eight thousand bucks down the drain. I thought the girls would get wild and reckless, so I bought cultured pearls and a diamond necklace, a waste of money. Cost me four thousand more. They were returned. I got no girls they repossessed. Both the car and the pearls. I styled my hair just like Cary Grant's. Bought a pair of those new tight pants A waste of money Household finance took my pants <laughs> The female gender I just don't get it Just when I'm out of both cash and credit, I found a honey. And this is what's funny. She don't need my money. She works for household finance. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Summer program.com The 
show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.